This is an Equity Mates Media podcast. The number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Equity Mines! I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is useful. Welcome to the Equity Mates Summer Series of 2020, brought to you by Superhero, who are offering $5 brokerage and $0 brokerage on all ETFs. Over the next 12 episodes, we're going to be diving into some of Australia's largest and most well known companies, as selected by you, the Equity Mates community. We'll be unpacking the company, its industry, its outlook, and some of the key financials. And in some instances, we'll also be taking the tough questions straight to the CEO. To do this, as always, I am joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How's it going, bro? I'm very good, Bryce. I'm looking forward to talking about this company. It's one that's captured the headlines. And Big time. not all positive for the company. Not really in the company's control, but we will get into all of that. We're talking about a company that has been a market darling up until recently, and that is Treasury Wine Estates. Treasury Wine Estates. Market darling, yes, but I think it's always been one of those companies that divides opinion pretty strongly. But yeah, you're right, Ren. It's certainly been in the news of late. We are recording this on the 2nd of December. The last sort of week or so has been a pretty tumultuous for Treasury Wines, which we will certainly get into in a little bit. Before we do, a massive thank you to Ben from the Equity Mates community who has helped with the research and analysis for this episode. Just like all other episodes, we're going to cover off summary of the company, talk about COVID impacts, industry, its outlook, some financials, and then have a crack at the valuation as well. So without further ado, let's get stuck in. Its ticker is TWE. So if you want to check it out as we speak and go through this episode, TWE on the ASX, Treasury Wine Estates. 
an Australian winemaking and wine distribution company, vertically integrated wine business with three principal activities, obviously growing grapes and sourcing the production of wine, and then also wine marketing, sales and distribution, not only within Australia, but all over the world. That's it. Now, before we get too deep into the company, you used a term there, vertically integrated. Do you want to just explain what that means? So vertically integrated REN is where the business essentially takes positions in different aspects of the supply chain. So in this case, if you think about the wine supply chain, you've got the growing of the grapes, which is one vertical and the sourcing. Another vertical is then the production and then another vertical is the sales and distribution. So some companies obviously stay in, in one vertical, whereas Treasury Wine Estates spread across all three. Basically, Treasury Wine Estates could be a business that buys grapes from growers, produces wine, slaps their labels on it, and then gives it to you know sales and distribution partners to do the sales and distribution. But Treasury is vertically integrated. It owns every step in its supply chain. It grows its own grapes. It produces its own wine and it sells and distributes its own wine. So fully vertically integrated, in theory, captures at every point in that supply chain, there's value to be captured and vertically integrated companies, in theory, capture that value at every step of the way. So before we get into a bit more about Treasury... <laughs> I'm feeling a quiz or a no, question. No, 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 no. <laughs> I just, whenever I think about Treasury, I always think about... So Treasury owns Penfolds, which is a premium wine brand, I guess, and they produce the Grange, Penfolds Grange. And I always just think about them as the wine that brought down the government. Yeah, Barry O'Farrell. <laughs> brought down Barry O'Farrell, the former New South Wales Premier. Well, who, do you want to give some context? Who allegedly received a bottle of Grange, couldn't remember it, and it went to ICAC and he resigned. Tough, ICAC, tough break. Yeah, yeah. ICAC, for those not in New South Wales, is the Independent Commission Against Corruption, yep. the government watchdog. So yeah, Treasury Wine Estates, the wine that brought down a government. <laughs> they, they could use that as a tagline. So Treasury Wine is one of the world's largest wine companies. It produces about 1.2% of the world's wines, which puts it in as the fourth largest. Which instantly just makes me think how fragmented the industry yeah. is. And like that's not surprising. Yeah. We, we sort of know that there's, I would say, millions of winemakers around the world from yeah, tiny Labels. little cellar doors to big producers. Yeah. The fourth largest in the world owns a scratch over 1% Crazy. of the global market. Yeah. Crazy. So it produces both commercial and luxury wines with a portfolio of over 70 well-known brands. Ren's already mentioned Penfolds, which is perhaps its most prestigious wine label. It's got Wolf Blass, 19 Crimes, which is a newer one here in Australia, and then Beringer Vineyards. I'm sure someone will tell me that I've pronounced that wrong, but some of the bigger brands that I'm sure you've all heard of and drunk. Wines are sold in more than 70 countries across the world, but they do focus on four sort of key regions being Australia and New Zealand, the Americas, Europe, and the Middle East, and Asia, so really the world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I think it's five principal reasons. Did regions. I say four? Well, yeah, Australia and New Zealand, one, the Americas, two, Europe, Europe three, the Middle East and Africa, four. Oh, no, sorry, Europe, Middle East and Africa is one region. That's a big region. Yeah, I know, so it's, it's, it's world. <laughs> yeah. And then Asia being the last region, so... It doesn't sell wine in Antarctica. <laughs> no, and for reasons a little bit later that we will dig into, but 45% of total profits are come from the Asia division. Mm. So if you have been keeping up with the news, you'll understand why that might be a massive issue for treasury wines and something we'll touch on quite shortly. Just a few more stats. They have 12,600 hectares of planted vineyards around the world. 
in some of the world's most sought after winemaking regions, the Barossa, the Hunter Valley. <laughs> yes, McLaren. <laughs> yes. Then they have 71 vineyards in Australia. Just a random fact, 19 Crimes is partnering with Snoop Dogg to celebrate the release. Snoop Dogg's everywhere. I know. Yeah, yeah. Menu Log, everything. Menu Log. Yeah. Menu Log. <laughs> <laughs> it's good ad. <laughs> anyway. Uh, yeah, to celebrate the release of its first Californian red wine. And they're reportedly looking at demerging the Penfolds brand. Were, but I, I think. Yeah, but I feel like they've that that's a, something that's thrown out. That's not the first time that's been thrown out. And I think they've taken it off the table. Okay. Yeah. Because of because everything of COVID, that's happened. Yeah, I think it was more than rumoured. I mean, Andrew Brown came in and spoke to us about how they seemed pretty, not convinced, but uh, I guess set on the idea of exploring it. But as I understand it, it's certainly been tabled for, for now. I mean, even at the Hearts and Minds conference, someone pitched the stock purely because of its Penfolds division. So yeah, watch this space, I guess. But if it does demerge, then you know it'll be uh, interesting to see what happens. So 2020 has been obviously a very tough year for Treasury wine. The share price is down about 45% from its high in 2019, not only from COVID, but uh, there are a number of other issues. So do you want to crack into those, Ren? Let's start with COVID. Net volume, the, the amount of liquid sold, I guess, and then sales in dollar figures are both down, 1.9% and 1.7% respectively. But the major loss came in the premium category. So I guess luxury sales or the premium sales, the highest price and the highest margin product sales were lower due to some of the sales channels being slowed or being shut down because of COVID. But then consumer preferences changed. And as people tighten their belts and stop spending as much on luxuries, consumers who were buying the premium product started buying cheaper product. And so while overall, their sales are down 1.7% because of COVID in that luxury category. It's taken a bigger hit. At the same time, the business has tried to pivot, I guess, a little bit. And its e-commerce sales have actually accelerated in the second half of the year. And they're doing some new and novel things like Wolf Blast, one of their brands, has partnered with Deliveroo in the UK. So mm. again, this story of COVID is a story of changing customer preferences and changing distribution models in mm. the face of you know bricks and mortar retail and sales channels being a little bit slow or shut down. Another major impact facing Treasury, we'll give a bit of context and then maybe, Ren, we can talk about what has just happened. In August, the Chinese Ministry of Commerce opened an anti-dumping investigation into Australian wine producers. So essentially, they were investigating wine producers coming into China and dumping a lot of wine at very low prices. And when we say dumping, that's an economic term to really come in and undercut domestic producers in terms of price. They're not literally just dumping bottles of wine. But yeah, so <laughs> there was accusations that the Australian wine producers were coming in and undercutting the producers over in China. Well, I think the key thing with dumping is you're selling it below the price that you sell it in your home market. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So the issue with that is that China is a key growth market for treasury wines. And obviously this presents a major concern for the industry as a whole, but also particularly treasury wines. It is estimated 85% of profit growth over the next three years for Penfolds would have stemmed from China. You know, the Chinese love to buy these sorts of premium brands and and obviously Penfolds is one of those. However, it has since escalated since then. It and has, last week there was an announcement from the Chinese government that, Ren, do you want to give a bit of info on? 
Yeah, so after they announced that investigation earlier in the year, they've now, I guess, concluded that investigation. And in the context of the broader trade tensions that we're seeing play out between China and Australia and also China and the US, China have announced anti-dumping tariffs on Australian wine producers. Those tariffs range from 107% to 212%. And for people who have seen that word tariffs thrown around but don't really understand what it means, think of it like an import tax. So basically for a Australian bottle of wine that is going to China, the Chinese government will charge 107 to 212% tax on that as it enters their country. And that then increases the price for the end customer in China, you know, that amount. So it really is a way for the Chinese government to confront this dumping practice. Now, the important thing to understand here is that the Australian wine industry claim they aren't dumping. The Australian government claim that they aren't dumping. It looks as if this is highly politically motivated. There's a bit of a history when it comes to dumping allegations. And it's one of the key levers, I guess, that members of the World Trade Organization can pull and claim against other countries. The US claimed that China was dumping steel. Then they added, they put tariffs on Chinese steel on the back of that. China have thrown a bunch of anti-dumping allegations against Australian exporters, not just wine. But if we talk about wine here, it's going to become a lot more expensive to buy treasury wines in China. And for Chinese consumers who are comparing Treasury's option to non-Australian options, all of a sudden Treasury starts to look a lot Very less expensive. appealing. Yeah. So Treasury went into a trading halt when the tariffs were announced after its share price had fallen 11%. The reason why the market got so worried about this and the reason why everyone's a little bit concerned about Treasury right now is that analysts of Treasury have predicted that this will hit earnings in a big way. They expect... In the F22 financial year, it'll be worth about $325 million. Mm. Mm. So it'll be $325 million less profit that Treasury makes. Mm. Which is significant. Yeah, it yeah. is. And and the other thing is there's flow-on effects as well. So if Treasury lose their ability to sell the volume that they're selling in China, then they've got a whole bunch more inventory that they need to try and sell in other places Potentially, that creates a supply and demand mismatch in countries like Australia or other key export markets, and they'll try and sell it at a lower price. That'll hurt their margins. That'll hurt their profit. Analysts are saying that in F23, the hit to Treasury Wine Estate's earnings could be as much as $350 million. Mm. The CEO of Treasury has come out and said that on the back of these tariffs, demand for their wines in China will be extremely limited. So the company is recognizing there is an issue. And analysts are saying things like China is now going to be a lost market for Treasury and future profits are just going to vanish. So not ideal. <laughs> not ideal. No, no. It's one of those stocks at the moment that I'm sure a lot of people are saying, oh, you know, surely it can't go much lower. You know, this is a good time to buy. But with all of these politically sort of motivated, I guess, trade wars and tensions and unknown outcomes when it comes to regulation and stuff, it's very much... I would say a sit and wait and sort of sort of see how this all plays out because yeah. yeah. To add to all of that, Ren, for 2020, 
there is a USA supply glut as well going on for treasury wine. So back in January, there were some pretty significant profit downgrades in the US announced over the oversupply of wine in the region. The stock price fell about 26%. The trade war between the US and China is impacting this, and it has meant that wine that was going to be sold in Asia has actually ended up staying in the US. And because of that, obviously, supply has increased, and I guess there's just too much to service the demand. On top of all of that, the US themselves had an epic, uh, I guess, season on the vines. and uh, <laughs> yeah, in 2019. In 2019, yeah. and that resulted in probably more production than they were anticipating, again, adding to more supply. So you can kind of see how with a business like this, there is a lot to consider, a lot of moving parts. And uh, I guess when you're thinking about investing, you need to have your finger on the pulse right across their vertically integrated businesses to, mm. to really understand what is the impact of all of this? Yeah, yeah. We started this whole conversation by saying Treasury is, you know, what, 1, 1.2% of the global wine market. And, you know, they sell their wines in over 70 countries. And so just on those two data points alone, you would say that a disruption in any one country, you know, it could be substituted to other countries. And, you know, they're such a small part of the overall market that they could just reallocate resources and could be okay. The importance of China to a lot of these Australian mm. exporters that it's such a big part of their market. And more importantly, it's such a big part of their future growth plans that even though they're not purely single point sensitive, they can sell to other customers. There's a really heavy reliance on China and given the geopolitical tensions, Treasury, one of those companies that are tough break facing the brunt of it. Yeah. It's not just wine. I think like things like Australian barley, coal, was it? Um, coal, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. A few others have been wrapped up in this trade war as well. So we'll see how it plays out. It doesn't look like it's getting de-escalated anytime soon. So for Treasury, you know, it's not the end of their business, but it is going to force a pretty hard rethink about their future plans. So before we take a brief look at the industry and its major competitors, we're just going to have a quick word from our sponsors. Okay, so we've certainly understood the impact not only of COVID, but some of the major, I guess, issues going on for 2020 with TWE. What is going on, I guess, more broadly in the industry and, and from a competitor standpoint? Big industry, the wine industry. Big industry. Global wine market is well, was valued at about $350 billion in 2018. That's expected to grow to about just a scratch under $450 billion US dollars in 2027. So it's an industry that's big. It's an industry that's growing. You're definitely doing your part with your uh, two bottles of wine a night. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> two? Two bottles of Penfold Grange a night, I heard. <laughs> yeah. Must be nice. Tw yeah. 20, 20, vin 20 year old vintage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In that overall wine market, the Asia Pacific is the leader in sort of demand for wine, and China is the leader within the Asia Pacific region. China is growing. It's expected to grow at about three to four percent a year over the next four or five years. So it's not, you know, an incredible growth story, but 4% a year off an incredibly high base and an incredibly large number of people is still meaningful growth. I assume those numbers, though, were pre-announcement of tariff. Well, I, it's an interesting question. Like, Chinese demand is still going to be there. There will still be other 
wine suppliers, both domestic, domestic players and yeah. non-tariffed international players that will be selling to Chinese consumers. I mean, Australian wine is good, but I don't think it will dull demand for wine True. generally. What do you reckon the second biggest consumer of wine in the Asia-Pacific region per capita is? Would you go Hong Kong? You might, but that would be wrong. Damn. <laughs> no, it's Australia. Oh. Yeah, Australia, then Japan uh, are the top three, China, Australia, Japan. In terms of fastest growing, India is actually the fastest growing. It's growing at about 7% a year. Mm. That middle class really coming up. Yeah. In terms of globally, the biggest consumer of wine, not per capita, but just in terms of volume, is the U.S., the US obviously has some big domestic wine makers, but Australia does and Treasury do export wine over there. And I think really the long and the short of this whole explanation is there's a lot of countries in the world, most of them consume wine. Most of them are consuming more wine than they did a year ago and will continue to consume more wine. And for Treasury, their challenge is to navigate these geopolitical and supply and demand issues and just to continue trying to capture more market share. Mm, mm. So there's a number of competitors. I mean, I don't think we really need to list them all. You can go to the local bottle and yeah. have a look. But yeah, I think really when you're thinking about competitors, probably the main way to think about it is that every country has their own domestic winemakers that service the domestic market. And then there are a bunch of big international players that are both trying to service their domestic market, but are also trying to export, all playing, you know, with different, I guess, types of grapes, different types of wine, different price points. And Treasury tries to sort of play up and down that spectrum of different price points and different types. So you, you've mentioned market share there, Ren, 1.2% of uh, the world's wine and 40% of Australia's wine export to China, which makes up a pretty significant dollar figure. So let's turn to the moat and try and, I guess, work through if there is one or not. You could argue on one hand that because it is vertically integrated from growing the grapes through to distributing the wine, it does offer some sort of protection against its competitors. And, you know, it's got a lot of brands in there that are strong and well-known around the world. So it certainly has a stable of some pretty good wines that get it a lot of demand. On the other hand, though, wine is one of those, I guess, products, especially here in Australia, that we're not actually tied necessarily to one brand. Research shows, and you know, this is through working in retail, that wine is one of those products that is easily switched on almost every shopping trip. You, you kind of just go in and buy if the label looks good or if the price is there, you're not necessarily tied to a brand like you are Apple. So that is, I guess an issue when it comes to a, a product like wine. Well, I'm not going to let you sit on the fence there and tell me you could argue or you could argue the other way. Do you think Treasury has a moat? I think it's got a scale moat, but at the end of the day, if I base it on how I buy wines, I don't think so. Yeah, I pretty adamantly don't think it has a moat because mm. I don't think scale in and of itself is a moat. Scale is a moat if it offers you pricing power or it offers you some other advantage because of that, there is certainly the ability for Treasury Wine to have pricing power because it owns the full supply chain. So it could, you know, have more sway when it comes to stocking in the Dan Murphys and the liquor lands of the world. But at the end of the day, it's not as strong a moat as like IP, for example, or some crazy technology that yeah. no one can... And I don't think it's... It's not like Treasury is a lower cost producer than 
any of its other competitors. And I mean, we haven't even got to the whole challenge when it comes to trying to stock in Dan Murphy's and that vicious retailer that is Woolworths doing 60,000 private label wines and making it harder for anyone else to capture market True. share. <laughs> it's not a commodity business. Like Penfolds obviously has a brand and, and that is somewhat of a moat, but I think Treasury overall, because there's so many players, is basically commoditized. Mm, yeah. yeah. And really, let's be honest, who doesn't choose wine just based on the label? Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so let's take a look at the future. I mean, it's pretty obvious that they're facing into a lot of headwinds, so we probably don't need to go into them again. But we did mention that the demerger of Penfolds, which might be on the cards again. But obviously, the biggest thing facing Treasury at the moment is the impact of the Chinese tariffs and the oversupply going over in the States as well. So the CEO has come out and said that it's not as big an issue as people think, but time will only tell, I guess. If we sort of move away from the things that Treasury don't have a lot of control over, and we talk about what their strategy is and, and what their future plans are, they're really trying to focus on premiumization and the company's moving towards the more profitable end of the scale. And they're, you know, they're, they're talking about things like optimizing their route to market process and stuff like that, which is, I guess, all about just controlling costs. And they're really trying to find those pockets of growth around the world, especially in the luxury sector. So China was and hopefully in the future will be a big one. The US, they're really looking to expand their market share in the premium market over there. And I imagine as you know, more and more countries, you know, continue to increase their demand for wine and that, that demand in the premium sector improves. The Treasury will want to play there. Nice. So, Ren, it's that time of the deep dive where we talk on financials. Let's do it. To put it in context for people, FY20 numbers, they did $2.6 billion in sales and about $260 million in profit off the back of that. That was actually down from the year before, two point eight, two point nine, and about $420 million in profit. So not a great F20, but if you zoom out a little bit and you look over the last sort of three or five years, they have been growing. So over the last five years, they've averaged growth in their sales at about 7.5% a year. They've averaged growth in their earnings per share, actually a lot higher than that at about 25, 26%. So it sort of feels like they had some strong growth, especially in their earnings or their profit up to 2019. And then things fell back a bit in 2020. And with all of this China stuff happening, it feels like 2021 is going to be a difficult year for them as well. Mm. Nice, friend. So anything else in the financials worth mentioning before we turn our attention to a valuation? I think one thing to look at is the amount of debt that they have has increased a fair bit over the last few years. So in 2017, they had about $600 million in debt. That went to $880 million and then to $1.1 billion. Wow. And is now at almost two billion, wow. one point nine billion. So I'm sure that's being used to invest in a bunch of areas of their business, expanding internationally, investing in more vineyards and stuff like that. But that debt number is an interesting one and one to keep in mind. But yeah, really, I think the financials of Treasury a story of some strong growth up until 2019, and then 
Yeah. Some uncertainty. And then, uh oh. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) If you're going to invest in treasury or you are a treasury investor, you probably, well, no, you definitely need to then take the next step and say, let's look at the different segments of the market because really that that overall number is obviously a meaningful number, but really what you want to look at is how the different regions are performing. And so you can look at how the Americas are performing, how Asia's performing, how Australia's performing, because you know your investment thesis is really going to be around their ability to execute on their plan to expand in certain regions. And I think you know some of their less important markets, like you know the Middle East or other markets that they're not really talking about as much, are less important than really the China numbers and the American numbers. Mm-hmm. So it's currently trading at eight dollars sixty-five, and if we turn our attention to a valuation and look at where that puts it relative to some of its competitors and also the industry from a price to earnings perspective. It's got a PE of 23 at the moment, which does make it look somewhat cheap against uh, some of the competitors, Constellation Brands, Diego, Diageo, whatever, however you want to pronounce it, Australian Vintage. You know, they're all sort of trading in the 38 to 49 range, but that's obviously because the price of its share has uh, considerably dropped since the announcement of the tariffs. Um, the global beverage industry price to earnings is 25, so mildly in line with that. Yeah, I think the most important thing when you're looking at price to earnings ratio for a company like Treasury, well, really for any company, but for a company where there's uncertainty around this year's numbers, is that price to earnings Forget is it. based on a on the last reported earnings number. So you'll see TTM a lot of the time trailing 12 months. And it means that the price is obviously updated every day the market's open and it's based on the current price, but the earnings number is based on the last reported earnings. So for Treasury, right now, their price to earnings is, what, 23 and a a bit, 23.8. But that's based on the last reported earnings. If the earnings are going to fall further, you would expect that price to earnings to go down, but then when they report their next set of earnings and they, people update that ratio, the number will go back up. So often when companies are in a bit of trouble and they're talking about you know their profit number falling, their price to earnings will look really cheap. But it's a bit of a value trap because next report, you might find that the market was actually pretty cluey to what the earnings number was going to be. And you know analysts are trying to forecast what it's going to look like. And it may not actually be as cheap as you think when the next earnings number is released. So A really important one to keep in mind whenever you look at price to earnings is the price is constantly updated, but earnings are updated less frequently. Yeah. Do you have a view on a a DCF REN? We can do it. We can do it for the exercise of doing it. For us, investors of our level, discounted cash flows are useful when a company has not as many headwinds, has a relatively clear growth plan and has relatively stable or predictable growth. Treasury is a company where its growth is so dependent on factors outside of its control and unpredictable factors like the geopolitical tensions between Australia and China and how those two sides decide to escalate or de-escalate this conflict or this tension. So I think for our purposes, let's do a discounted cash flow for the purposes of doing it with the caveat that whatever growth rate we put in there is highly likely to be wrong and potentially the growth rate you need to put in there is no growth at all. Sure. Let's take the average over the last five years. The earnings per share grew at 27.5%. So if we say over the next five years, it can continue to do that. I would say that is probably 
the most bullish case you would make and you probably wouldn't make it. With a discount rate of 10%, after that five years of growth, you just say the growth will continue at inflation. You get a price of $11.40, so not bad at all, but that's a pretty bullish case. If you change that growth number and you just say it's only going to grow at inflation, it'll grow at 3%, you get a number more in the $6.50 range. So I think that's probably a fair range. Where it's trading now, it's probably a fair value given the uncertainty. Um, But the problem for me is that the downside risk is so unknown and so big. And you you could very easily see that growth rate actually go negative. And then you can still do a discounted cash flow. Like if I say over the next five years, profit will fall at 10% a year. And then after that, it will grow at inflation you still get a a scratch over five bucks. It's not a worthless company. It's a profitable company that's a big player in its market and it still obviously has value. But yeah, for me, the risk reward and the uncertainty at this point Mm. is a confusing one. In saying that, it was pitched at the Hearts and Minds conference. So there are stock pickers who are smarter than us who are still bullish on this stock. And so, I mean, for the sake of the Australian wine industry, I hope they're right and yeah. I'm wrong. Bullish pre-tariffs, but you, you would have expected that they had factored something like that happening. There's a case that maybe 200% tariff don't dull demand for Australian wine and that the premium category of the Chinese market is willing to pay three times as much for Australian wine. I mean... It's that would really put a bee in the bonnet of the Chinese government. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, and I mean, that's the thing. Like, they could just increase the tariffs. Nice. Well, that uh, brings us to the end of Treasury Wine Estates. Again, thank you to Ben, who really helped out with the, the research and analysis for that one. And also a massive thank you to the sponsors of the Equity Mate Summer Series 2020, being Superhero, the newest and cheapest broker in town at the moment, offering $5 brokerage, a flat fee on your investments, and also $0 brokerage on ETFs. So head to superhero.com.au to check that out if you do want to buy a Treasury wine estates or any of the other stocks that we have spoken about, $5 flat fee to get it done is a pretty good deal. And they've got an amazing tech-driven platform. So head over there and figure it out and uh, (laughs) get amongst it. But Ren, that's it. And uh, we'll chat next week. Sounds good. Thanks for listening to Equity Mates Investing Podcast, a production of Equity Mates Media. Please remember that everything you hear in Equity Mates Investing Podcast is general advice only. The content has been prepared without knowing your personal objectives, specific financial circumstances, or goals. The host of Equity Mates Investing Podcast may maintain positions in the companies discussed. Before considering any investment, please read the product disclosure statement and consider speaking to a licensed financial professional. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. 
How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.